0: Okay, good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right, this is one of those Sundays where I'm actually going to have to slow down a little bit to make sure that we don't go too far ahead because it would be really nice to finish Chapter 19 next week without getting into Chapter 20. So we'll be here in Revelation today and next week, and then you guys will get a break. You're probably glad about that for a while. Eric and I are heading out for about, I don't know be in Israel for four weeks and then we have to take a week to go up to Canada and a week to come back, so about six weeks. And uh, we're just praying the Lord will lead and guide in some other things. If God opens a door for Mindy and Jamie, possibly uh, Matthew and Kelly to come over at some point, we're going to be uh, praying for that. Uh, but things are a little tense in Israel right now, so just want to get on the ground and make sure it would be wise to do that. So um, I'm really excited to go back to the land and to follow up with some of the work we've done this year and just to be able to take Eric over and uh, there's no greater joy than to show somebody the land where Jesus walked. I was watching some old video this morning. I thought I had a clip that I could play for you this morning that's really appropriate in light of the scripture we're dealing with, but it must have got corrupted and it's not on there. It was from 96. When I was in Israel, and there's a couple clips on there that are classics, but they've been corrupted. Uh, Shalom from Tel Aviv is gone. Oh, no. It got corrupted and when I transferred from VHS over to... So that's an inside joke, uh, some of you guys know, but boy, I, uh, uh, I really thought I knew a whole lot of stuff back then. And it's amazing to see, look back and laugh at yourself years and years ago. But um, those songs this morning were a blessing. And um, when we look and consider all the madness and the the wickedness and the iniquity and the doom all around us here in our country and abroad, there's three things that can still our spirits right quickly if we'll take time to do them. One of them is open a Bible, read God's Word. The other thing is to worship. In spirit and truth. And truth is in the word. And spirit is like what we saw this morning with that worship. Just to think about the name of Jesus. Being face to face with him. About his love and his light and his grace in our lives. This'll, this'll, this is medicine for the world. And then the third thing is to go out and do what a couple brothers here in the church did Friday night. Just to go out and share the gospel with the lost. Those three things right there are medicine. Anti-inflammatories. They're spiritual anti-inflammatories when your spirit's inflamed and vexed like Lot was living and dwelling in Sodom. And like true believers undoubtedly are living in America today. If they're not, then I wonder if they even know the Lord. But that is spiritual anti-inflammatory, spiritual ibuprofen per se. The word, worship, and sharing the gospel. And I felt like the worship this morning was soothing. I don't even really care to get up here and blast the country and our president who cares because one day we'll be face to face with our Lord Jesus and it reminds me of something Paul said when you think of that phrase face to face and it ties directly into what we're doing this morning comparing the living word to the written word in 1 Corinthians 13 he talks about charity charity is not loving with your mouth it's taking the love you have in your heart unconditionally particularly for the believer and putting it into action. There's a lot of people out here today that claim they love something. Or this fool of a governor in Virginia is now going to make a tour of his state. And he's going to promote healing. He's not going to resign, but he's going to go around and talk about racial healing and talk about his love and all of this. It's one thing to say you love, but charity is love in action. And the charity Paul's talking about here is between believers. It blows my mind that there's so many so-called Christians out there that talk love, love, love. We've got to love on the homo. We've got to love on the lesbo. We've got to love on the tranny. We've got to love on the, the, uh, the, the Mohammedan. We've got to love on the Democrat. But when it comes to their brethren, their brothers and sisters in Christ, won't even give them the benefit of the doubt. If a brother or sister in Christ is accused of something, they automatically believe the wicked accuser. That is in diametric opposition to what Paul says here in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13. And there's another thing that so many people that when they want to use God's word to justify the virtue virtu- posturing, forget to read. Love or charity rejoices not in iniquities. Love does not rejoice in sodomy, pedophilia. It does not rejoice in a green new deal, which is wickedness, paganism. It does not rejoice in abortion. It doesn't rejoice in false doctrine and yoking up with Catholics and Muslims. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. So there's a big difference between love and charity. That's why I like that good old King James word here. Charity, verse 8, never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there be tongues, they will cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, here's what's interesting. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So, Paul speaks of the coming of something that's perfect. And when the perfect is come, we'll have understanding. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. Remember what I talked about opening up in Revelation 19 verse 1? That molten sea, that looking glass that separates us from God. Now, between us and the Lord, way out in the north, past the empty space, back through the firmament, that sea of glass. We see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face. Face to face with the Lord. Revelation 4.1, John saw heaven open and a voice, voice say come up here and he was immediately through that looking glass in the throne room of God and saw the Lord face to face. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part. Now we know the Lord. Now we know His will in part, limited to what He has chosen to reveal to us in the Scriptures. But then shall I know even as I also am known. Then, face to face, we won't only know God's special revelation, but we'll know exactly who we are in Christ. We'll know exactly who he is. We'll know the answers to the mysteries of the ages. Now, most people look at that scripture and say, this is a clear reference to the believer in the presence of God, to the second coming of Christ. All know, my friends, you see the living word and the written word are the same. And this is one of those interesting passages in the New Testament that follows the pattern of Old Testament prophecy. Remember we talked about Old Testament prophecy having a dual reference or a dual fulfillment? Yes, John the Baptist was Elijah that should come ahead of the first of of Advent if you'll accept it. But Elijah truly will come, Jesus said. Messiah came once. He wore a vesture dipped in blood. He comes again a vesture dipped in blood. There's a dual fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is true as well. Here Paul is prophesying something that has an initial near-horizon fulfillment and something with a distant fulfillment. Just like in the Old Testament with Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. This will be the sign to King Ahaz. The near-fulfillment was in the next chapter. When he went into a virgin, took her as a wife, they came together and had a son named Maharshala Hashbaz. And before that son was old enough to know evil from good... The kings that were a threat to King Ahaz were removed. But that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the coming born of a virgin. We talked about types and antitypes. That's what we got here. We've got the type and the antitype. And guess what? One is the written word, the other is the living word. Ties in perfectly. I didn't even think about this passage this morning. Didn't even study it or look at it until I heard that song face to face. And the Lord brought it to mind. You see, what was the first perfect thing that came after Paul wrote that? Was it Jesus Christ in the sky for his saints? No. Do we believe that the scriptures in their Old New Testament canons are perfect and complete? Yes. It's funny because that here in the Greek language is not a masculine or a feminine. It's a neuter. It's a neuter word. Uh, uh, going a Greek is not masculine and feminine like Hebrew or Spanish or, Nepal, or Hindi, it's got a neuter voice as well. Paul is talking about the Word of God. If you go back and read um, um, from the beginning of chapter 13 and then go into 14, he's, 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 he's uh, contrasting words of men, what we speak and say, versus words of God. So what Paul is prophesying is the Word of God. The Word of God is the perfect. And guess what? It has a written element and a living element. So truly, when the living Word comes and raptures us to Himself, we'll know all. We see through a glass darkly, but then we shall know even as we are known. But do not forget that so is it with the written Word. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the the written Word of God was not complete. It wouldn't be completed until the end of the first century with John. His gospel is three epistles in the book of Revelation. And once that was complete, God put an an epitaph at the end of it, an epilogue, don't add to it, don't take away from it. And that word was complete and sufficient. God's complete and sufficient, special revelation to us. When Paul wrote, he saw through a glass darkly because he didn't have the completed revelation of God. He didn't have... The epistles of Peter and James and, and Hebrews he hadn't even written yet. He didn't have John's gospel or the book of Revelation. But he spoke of a day when the perfect would come and those that saw through a glass darkly the Corinthians he was writing to wouldn't anymore. Because then face to face. That word face to face or that phrase... Every word has a dictionary meaning and a connotation. You learn that in ba- used to learn that in basic grammar uh, in, in the public school. Now in English class, all you learn is that, that uh, 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 so-and-so Johnny's got two mommies or two daddies. That's all you learn in English class anymore. But you used to learn basic grammar, and that phrase face-to-face has a connotation. It creates a mind picture. Every word cre- creates an image in our mind when we use it. That's why some words can mean the exact same thing, but one form might be very rude and offensive and the other not, because of the image it creates. Face to face creates the image of what happens when I open a book before my face and see what it has to say. That's what's there embedded in that Greek language. Guys, we don't see through a glass darkly anymore when it comes to the written word of God. We have it. That's why we need not be confused about what is right and wrong, what is truly virtuous how we should vote, how we should make decisions in our civic society because we don't see through a glass darkly like our president does because he's not born again. He sees through a glass darkly, but we don't. Here, we can know ourselves exactly as we are known. When we read God's word, we know who we really are in the eyes of God. Sinners in need of a savior and saints that have been blood-bought by the Messiah. If you want to know who you are, open this book. If you want to know who people are that promise you all sorts of things, open this book. We can know exactly who that filthy, wicked governor of Virginia is by opening this book. We can know who our president is by opening this book. We can know who the politicians are, who the pastors really are, who the TV preachers really are and are motivated by, by opening this book. So Paul is making reference to the Word of God. And remember, the Word of God is the written Word and the living Word. They go together. So we don't see through a glass darkly in terms of God's special revelation. And then one day in the presence of the living Word, that sight won't be limited to special revelation. We won't, we'll, it'll be, it'll, it'll extend to general revelation. We'll have a full understanding. So as it is with the living Word, so it is with the written Word. We can rest assured. That in seeing clearly now in the written word, one day we'll be able to see clearly in the presence of the living word. One in the same. Face to face. So until the day we can be face to face with the living word, let's savor every moment we can be face to face with this written word. So many are ashamed of the Bible today, so many that are sophisticated in their sermons. They they pastor the churches with the numbers. They have the seminary degrees. They dress nice and they look presentable. They go on the talk shows. They have all the Facebook and Twitter followers. But they beat around the bush when it comes to the Bible. They won't take a stand. They apologize for what God has written in parts of the Bible. They want to try to act like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. We need not be like that. I was encouraged. Not all is bad. We tend to assume that almost everybody compromises. We, we, we assume that, that almost everyone compromises in this life. And that if, if somebody once stood for Christ, they probably don't anymore. It's not always like that. I was really encouraged this week. I remember as a kid, my brother and I were really into Christian metal heavy metal music and of course there were lots of people had problems with that you know you'd have guys with the hair all teased up and the bright clothes on playing electric guitars and yet singing things that were right out of god's word i'm not here to debate types of music or anything today but my brother and i were big fans in the 80s of a band called striper Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes heel. healed. And people used to make fun of these guys in the secular world. The, the, the heavy metal rockers would make fun of these guys. And they were kind of a laughing stock. But all these many years later, I find it interesting that these guys are still making albums. And all the rest of them are forgotten. And I remember one of the things they used to do at their concerts was they would pass out Bibles to people, toss out Bibles to people in the crowd. And we think, oh, that's kind of silly or whatever. I'll take a guy that's dressed up like in in, in yellow and black with teased up hair and a little mascara giving Bibles out before I'll take somebody standing behind a pulpit who wants to apologize for something God said. But it was interesting that that they came out with a new album recently, and the lyrics are still biblical. They're still doctrinal, not surface-level garbage like we've become used to in contemporary Christian music. But I watched a video, a music video. that I don't know, Michael Sweet's got to be in his 50s. And the guy can still, still wail. His voice is amazing. But there's a video, and throughout the video, this new music video, he's just clutching his Bible the whole time, sitting in the pew at the church, just holding on that, to that Bible. And it's just showing the words, Holy Bible, Holy Bible, throughout the video, just clutching it. And I thought, man, that says a lot. There's a lot of people more sophisticated who would pass judgment on a Christian metal band from years ago who are ashamed to clutch a book in the presence of the world that says Holy Bible. Not all is bad. Praise God for that testimony. Holy Bible. You know, that is who Obama said was the enemy here in America, those of us that clutch our guns in our Bibles and in the eyes of American society and American government in general, we are the enemy. But let's clutch our Bibles. Let's accept that epitaph just like the people in Antioch accepted the accusation of being Christian. Let's clutch our Bibles. We are an enemy. Of what America stands for. But what these fools don't recognize. Is we are a formidable enemy. The fact that we'll clutch our Bibles. Makes us a formidable foe. And we have weapons to fight them. That they can never understand. For they are spiritual weapons. We have prayers. And direct access to the Father. That they don't have. And we can pray to God the Father. To blot them out. To scrape them from the ground. Just like David prayed. Just like Moses said God would do to a wicked society. I like that Spanish verb, rayer, means to scrape. And that's exactly the verb used in the Spanish Bible there when Moses tells Israel what will happen to a nation that knows him and turns their back. So we have weapons. We are a formidable enemy. We can go to God and say, Blessed be the Lord God my strength who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. You know, God said where His people are concerned, one will turn to flight an army of a thousand. We are a formidable foe. We're a formidable foe. They don't realize that. We're not afraid to die. We're not afraid to stand in the gap. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. These fools don't know who they're messing with. And I'm not talking about a physical fight. I'm not going out looking for a fight. I'm not going out looking to be violent. But you come and try to harm the innocent in my presence or you come and try to take from me those that God has entrusted me to protect, you are going to meet a foe that you have no clue about. Goliath met a foe like that. You have no idea who you're messing with. Christians need to start using their spiritual weapons. The Word of God. We need to start using them. We need to start asking God to scrape from the ground these wicked who would destroy our country and murder these little babies. You know what? I'm sick and tired of being concerned about sensitivity. No more sensitivity. I don't want to be sensitive. I want to be righteous. No more sensitivity, righteousness. I could care less about blackface. If somebody put on blackface, that means nothing to me. If a, white, if, if a black dude dressed up like a white man and made fun of white people, it means nothing to me. There's a lot of stupid things that white people do we deserve to get made fun of. And there's some really stupid things black people do they deserve to get made fun of. People deserve to be mocked and ridiculed for their foolishness. I could care less about that. I could care less about um, uh, all of this junk that's so offensive to everybody. I'm not concerned with offensiveness. I'm concerned with righteousness. And righteousness by nature offends the wicked. So let's embrace it. Let's embrace it. Clutching a Bible. That makes us enemies of what this country stands for. Back in the day when this country was founded, those that clutched the word of God were Were the friends of this country. It was the backbone upon which this country was built. Now it's the opposite. Let's embrace it and quit longing for something that's not there anymore. The written word of God. Because we know the living word of God. You know, another, I was also encouraged by, um, I I looked up, there was another artist that I was a friend, I was, uh, uh, I'm trying to make sure that I haven't, there's another artist that was was some somebody I really liked as a kid. You know, my parents always listened to really good old school music in the old Ford Fairmont station wagon when we drove to my grandparents' house in Raleigh. Good stuff. Back when Christian music was a ministry and not merchandise, and, you know, Keith Green's Second Chapter of Acts and others. And I always liked Dallas Holm. Dallas Holm had a great voice, good music, and there's some some of those old albums I still listen to and I was thinking about a song the other day when I Published my my newsletter for the ministry. And I went back and listened to it. And I thought, you know what? I wonder what that guy's up to today. I mean, has he compromised? Is he like all these other people that wrote good music and now you wouldn't know? I mean, I don't know. You tend to assume that about people. So I went and, and, and looked him up and did a little research. And I found a few things that were said by him recently I thought would be interesting to read. One said, I became a Christian in 1965. And my life was radically and eternally transformed. Anybody that describes their coming to Christ as radical transformation has an understanding. My music became the means whereby I could express the dynamics of that transformation and share the reality of Christ with others. So he's describing why he, what he's done with his music all these many years later and he says it was, it was to speak Christ to others. He said, if I reached the whole world but lost my own family, I'd consider myself a failure. Early on, I set a priority system that put God first, family second, and my music ministry third. If I'm not the husband and father I need to be in my own home, I have no right to proclaim truths of the kingdom to others. Wow, that's powerful. It's been a remarkable journey, yet it hasn't all been easy. When people hear my music or see me on TV or in concert, they don't realize that those are just moments in a life. I've had struggles, heartaches, and disappointments just like everyone else. My wife has fought an ongoing 28-year battle surviving cancer, but Christ remains preeminent in all things. Praise God for a testimony like that. It's not all bad. Not everyone compromises. Let's, Let's be like that. 30, 40 years later from now, when we look back on how we've served the Lord. Consistency. We're not changed. We're not flipped the switch one day and decided, oh, yesterday I, I believe the Bible taught homosexuality was wrong, but now I realize that I and every other Bible teacher in church history has been wrong. Now it's okay. We don't want to be like that. And not everyone's like that. Praise God for men like Michael Sweet and Dallas Holm who are still preaching that same message all these years later. Still clutching to a Bible. Still talking about Christ's preeminence. It's because they have an understanding of the relationship between the written word and the living word. That's why they still clutch the Bible and speak about Christ as preeminent. That's not normal today. We were in Revelation 19. There was my introduction. (laughs) We're in Revelation 19 and we got down to the opening of heaven and what came out. We talked about the one on the white charger, the white steed, called Faithful and True. In righteousness does judge and make war. I wanted to show you a clip today where I'm reading this passage and I say, Hey, churchianity, put that in your your, your, your pipe and smoke it. He wages war in righteousness. That's not the Jesus many people in this country claim because they claim a false Jesus, but it's the Jesus of the Bible. He was clothed in a vesture, dipped in blood, not His own blood like at the cross, but the blood of the wicked. He's mashed flat, and His name is called the Word of God. And last week we started talking about, let's, let's look at the relationship between the living Word and the written Word, especially in view of the Great Commission, which we as a, you as a church support, which I as a missionary endeavor to carry out, Jesus gave the message of the Great Commission in Luke 24 tied to three important words. It is written. Because it is written, you should go forth and preach repentance and faith to the nation. The living word gave his great commission on the basis of the written word. So I said, okay, let's look at these two. What does the Bible say? Let's look at that inseparable relationship in a day when the world says, I love Jesus, but the Bible is just written by men. That fool, that harpy, that grotesque individual in Washington, Nancy Pelosi, tried to say this week that we, it's very important that we take care of God's creation. She's talking about environmentalism. What about the unborn babies, witch? What about the unborn babies, you vile demon from the pit of hell? Their blood will be avenged on you. The day you're scraped from the ground in the presence of those that remain in this country won't be a day we as Christians will rejoice, but neither will we shed a tear. What about the unborn baby? These people want to use God's word and they have no clue about it because they don't know the living word. People want to use the living word's name and they have no clue because they don't know the written word. We looked at them, both are eternal. Both are creators based on the testimony of the scriptures. Both were tried by fire. The son of God in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace and the word of God tried is silver in a furnace of earth. They both judge. Neither can be broken. Both offer new birth. Both give life. Both are immortal and both are not just true, but both are truth. Amen. Let's keep looking today. Both can be, according to the scriptures, both can be loved. The psalmist in in Psalm 119 talks about his love for the word of God. Oh, how I love thy law, verse 97. I love thy testimonies, verse 119. I love thy commandments, verse 127. I love thy precepts. All elements of the written word of God. His law. We want to, as Christians, we want to just toss out the law of God. Because we don't understand what it exists to do. Oh, well, we're not under the law. So we don't even need to study the Old Testament. And when God says what he says about uh, homosexuality and abortion and all those things in the law. And yes, he does speak about abortions very clear. We want to just say, well, that was a different time. That was Israel. No, 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 my friends. The law was never meant... ...as a means for attaining personal righteousness. Not in the days of Moses, not today. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law of God shows us His righteousness versus our sinfulness. The law of God individually points us to Messiah. But the law itself is holy. The law not only shows God's righteousness, it shows justice. And the law... Does what laws do in any society. It shows us how to govern society. It's not about personal righteousness, but it's a prescription for governance. And that's, it tells us how to govern the world, how leaders should govern their nations. That's why God told Israel, This is going to be your witness in the sight of the nations, so they'll know how to govern. The psalmist loved that law. We've got the answer to many political decisions that should be made in this country, right in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The psalmist loved that law because it was justice. It shows us how to govern. He loved the testimonies. Those were the stories of the successes and failures of men in relationship to God and their faith and trust in Him and what happened when they turned their back on Him. He loved those testimonies. And most of those testimonies were not positive reports. That's the funny thing. If the Jews just wrote down the Bible to try to justify themselves and create a religion, why were they so critical of themselves? I mean, if anything, the Old Testament shows us that the Jews are stiff necked, a rebellious, a blind, and a very foolish people. That's the testimony of the Old Testament. Now, why would people that wanted to prompt themselves up write that down? That makes no sense. Go look at the Quran and look how it builds up the Muslims. The Muslim and Muhammad do nothing wrong. Look at the writings of men. They go out, this fool that used to be in the FBI that was fired because he's a liar, puts a book out and talks about all this stuff Trump supposedly did in the White House, and he built it's all about himself. Yes. Who would believe that fool? Mm-hmm. Who would believe anything he has to say? But the testimonies that the psalmist love aren't positive about his people, but he loved it nonetheless. The commandments. God gives us commandments. The psalmist loved them. they didn't hate them. They weren't a burden. And he loved thy precepts. Those precepts. Those prescriptions. Prescriptions like owe to no man anything but to love for another. Those prescriptions like the borrower is servant to the lender. Those prescriptions about uh, that that, that Ecclesiastes tells us about about, uh, gathering things together and enjoying the fruits God has given us. He loved those things. In the book of Malachi, the prophet speaks by the Lord and God sums up the law. He calls it the law, the statutes, and the judgments I gave you. The written word of God is His law. It's His statutes. Those statutes are those things that transcend our understanding, but we see them as righteous because God says so, whether we understand it or not. The judgments are those common sense things that we as human beings should know with or without the revelation of God, but yet we still have to be reminded to do it. Common sense. Common sense tells you that if strangers come into your country, they should live by the same law as the citizen. That's common sense. God writes it down in the book of Deuteronomy because the stiff-necked people need to be reminded. That's a judgment. That's a, um, a, 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 a judgment. It's written on our comments. I that's common sense. But all of these parts of the written word, the psalmist loved. The living word can be loved. 1 John 4 19, we love him because he first loved us. Most people that say they love Jesus have no clue the, have no clue or couldn't even speak of their love in these terms. He first loved us. That's why we loved him because we were lost in sin, not because we were basically good. We love Him because He first loved us. He can be loved. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. So, the living Word can be loved. He should be loved. Just as the psalmist loved the written Word. I like that phrase in 1 Corinthians 16, anathema maranatha. We often use maranatha as a... comes from the Greek. They come from Aramaic words, but we use maranatha in the sense of a, a greeting or a comfort thing. It is a comfort thing, but it's got a negative connotation. When we say maranatha, it means our Lord cometh. Our Lord cometh to judge, It's connected to approaching judgment. So when we say Maranatha or think of Maranatha, it's not, oh gosh, Jesus is coming, it's going to be great. No, it's Maranatha, our Lord cometh. That's what we can say to the wicked. <clears throat> There's people in government. Call your politician Maranatha. The Lord's coming. And the righteous will be justified and people like you, you wicked politician, will be judged. Maranatha. Maranatha, anathema, Maranatha. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, Maranatha. That kind of throws a little monkey wrench into this. Just peace and love and tolerate all kinds of sin in the church. I like it in the Hebrew New Testament. It says, "Yaharam Maranatha." Yaharam is the is the Hebrew word that comes from the the Greek or Aramaic anathema. What it means is, let them be. Judgment comes. When it comes to these people that we give so much time stressing about that seem to be in power, let them be. Judgment's coming. It's an exclamation of approaching judgment. And that word in Hebrew is also where they get the word boycott. I like it. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, including these politicians who claim they do... But their words and their actions show otherwise. Boycott him. Boycott him in your mind. Let him be, for judgment comes. The living word, the written word, they can be loved. They can also be hated. Oh, how, how well we know that. John 15, 8. Herein, no, that's not correct. What do I... What usually... 15, 18. I usually leave the one out in my notes. So if I see 8 and it's not right, it must be 18. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, Jesus said. Living word can be hated. And that's why the world hates us. Because it hated Christ first. Jesus talked about in John 15, 25. He went on to say later in that chapter to his disciples that... What's coming is to fulfill the written word of God. What's written in their law. This is why the Jews are going to crucify me. To fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So even in the Old Testament it prophesied that Jesus would be hated by his own people without a cause. That's a quotation from Psalm 69. A messianic psalm. Psalm 69 Verse 4, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty, then I restored that which I then I restored that which I took not away. If you go on down to verse 21, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's the Messiah. That's a messianic song. They hated him without a cause. They nailed him to a cross and they gave him vinegar to drink. We see this fulfilled in the New Testament. Why should we be surprised if those that hate us without a cause are greater than the number of hairs on our head? Both can be hated. The written word can be hated. Back in Psalm 119, that great long psalm, the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Maybe that's something you guys, kids, could memorize. It's very rhythmic in English. You should be able to do it. It's broken down into eight verse sections. The first, and it goes through the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses in Hebrew start, each of those start with the letter Aleph. The next eight verses start with the letter Bet. Then Gimel, Dalet, Hay, Vav, Zion, Ket, Tet, and so on to the end of the alphabet. It's an amazing acrostic. it. But it, in Psalm one nineteen sixty. 60... The psalmist said, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. I kept your word written down in the the book. Verse 61, the bands of the wicked had robbed me, but I have not forgotten thy law. So he gave attention to follow God's will and the wicked hated him for it. But he refuses to forget it. He talks about thy word throughout this psalm, being persecuted without a cause. The written word can be hated. Proverbs 28, verse 9. He that turneth his ear from hearing the law. What better illustration of hatred than to turn your back on something? To literally turn your back on it. That's hatred. The Word, you can, you can turn your ear from hearing God's Word. It's exactly what those wicked Jews did in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen preached. What did they do? It says they put their fingers in their ears and they ran at Him. They hated the Word of God. They hated Him because they hated the testimony of the Scriptures. He had gone back and started with Abraham and was going down through the Scriptures And then he noticed that suddenly these people weren't even paying attention anymore. They were mocking. He changed his tune. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and mind, you always resist the Holy Ghost. And then when he said he looked up and he saw the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, that's when they put their hands in their ears and ran on him. They hated the Word of God. They hated what was written there in Daniel. They hated that he identified Jesus with the Messiah. The Word of God can be hated. And it's hated when we put our fingers over our ears and we turn away from it. Guess what? He that turneth away his, hear, his ear from hearing the law. People do this. They hate the word of God. Even his prayer shall be abomination. So it's, you, can be, you can pray to the God of the Bible and be sinning when you do so because you've dissimulated in your heart already. It's just like those Jews who came to Jeremiah after the Babylonians carried away the people captive and destroyed the temple. They, were, they said, we want to know God's will. We want to do what God says. What does he say about whether or not we should go to Egypt? Let us know, prophet. We want to do what's right. And God told the prophet, look, these people have already, they've already made their decision. So you tell them exactly what's going to happen to them if they go back to Egypt. And that's what the prophet did. God said, I will take my hand off you. And they, at, at, at the end of hearing, they came and said, We want to know God's will. We want to know His way. Jeremiah told them. And they said, We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to listen to you. You're wrong. They hated the word of God. And they went to Egypt. And the Jews have paid for it ever since. As it went down there. The written word can be hated. The living word can be hated. They can also be despised. Isaiah 53.3 said that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men. Despised and rejected of men. Daniel said he, Messiah would be cut off. How is it that the Jewish people can't understand so clear, it's so clear that Jesus was their Messiah? They can't understand because they, their eyes must be open first. We can't understand unless our eyes are open. The written word, Proverbs 13 13, whosoever despiseth the word shall be destroyed. The Hebrew root used in Isaiah 53 for the living word and in Proverbs 13 for the written word is the same despised. Messiah is despised. Whosoever despises God's written word shall be destroyed. Attention, America. America once, in general, feared the word of God. That doesn't mean everybody was saved and all our founding fathers were born again. But in general, men feared the word of God. That's why it was quoted in the halls of Congress. That's why it was quoted by presidents. Today, they despise it. You see, we went from fear to apathy. And that apathy in recent years has become just flat out despising God's word. Whosoever despises the word will be destroyed. America's end is doom. It's not greatness. Oh, there may be revival. There may be times of God being gracious and merciful like we was when he didn't give us the devil witch. Can you imagine where we'd be today? It would be full-blown socialism here today if that harpy had been elected. So we can praise God for that, but it doesn't change the end of this society. We can talk about economic success and black and Hispanic unemployment and the stock market and all of the and Supreme Court justices. But yet, when talking about all these things is devoid of repentance, devoid of, devoid of humility, and devoid of even acknowledging the sins of this country, the only end is doom and destruction. When we can't even say that all abortion is wrong, I'm not talking about late term. That's not acceptable. I will be satisfied with nothing less than the complete outlaw of all forms of abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. I'll be satisfied with nothing less. All abortion is wrong. It's great that they're talking about late term, but it's all wrong. And the answer is not... Laws and supreme courts, the first step is to get on our knees and repent. Homosexuality is wrong. I could care less what your reason. I could care less if you were molested as a child or you as a woman were treated badly. Those are horrible things, but it doesn't excuse sin. Sin is sin, and until we repent and acknowledge these things as a nation, we put our stamp of approval on it as a nation. Until we repent, there is no greatness. We despise God's word as a nation. Until we acknowledge these things as sins. And those that despise the written word will be destroyed. The living word and the written word can be loved, hated, despised. They can be rejected. To despise something is bad. To reject it is even worse. Messiah, not only despised by his people, but rejected of men. Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus, in John 12, the living word, he, can be, he was despised and rejected of men, prophesied there. In John chapter 12, verse 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word. Hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Jesus said, There are those that reject him. And because they reject him, the written word will judge them. The written word can be rejected. God told his people, Israel, in Hosea chapter 4, 6, that they had rejected knowledge and forgotten God's law. They rejected knowledge, forgot his law. Jesus told the Pharisees, the religious leaders who claimed to know the word, full well ye reject the commandment of God and have made the word of God of none effect. They rejected it. You know, he, the, the Pharisees came in their religious hypocrisy criticizing Jesus' disciples because they, were, they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And they always talk about washing this and washing that and traditions and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus said, you bunch of hypocrites. You fully reject the commandments of God. You're sitting here worried about whether somebody washes their hands. And yet you openly defy the word of God. And he talked about how these Pharisees would not honor their parents. Their parents would have needs and their parents would have... um, Hardships, and instead of sharing their wealth with their parents to honor them, they would say, Oh, no, I've dedicated that wealth to the Lord. It is Corbin, it's dedicated to the Lord, so I can't use it. So they would reject the need right there in front of them and not even honor their parents. They were so blind they'd get on the disciples for not washing their hands, and then they were fully rejecting God's law about honoring their parents. You know, we do the same thing in our churches. There are people in our own bodies. I don't believe this church is like that at all. But there are those that are. They have people in their own bodies. Widows, fatherless, elderly, struggling people that have needs. And the church has got money sitting in a bank account. And they won't touch it. It is Corbin. It's for a building. Can't use it. It's for a building. Can't use it. Or missionaries that have needs. Oh, we can't use it, it's Corbin. It's, it's for our building program. No different than the Pharisees. Full well you reject the commandment of God. <clears throat> the written word can be rejected. The living word can be rejected. They can also both be received. Hated, loved, despised, rejected, both can be received. Paul told the Thessalonians... In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that you received the word of God, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. The word of God was received. The written word was received by the Thessalonians. Not as something men wrote down, but as God who said it. It's funny that in the book of Acts, chapter 17, when Paul goes to Thessalonica, there's an uproar. This is about 20 years after the, the resurrection of Christ. Paul goes into Thessalonica, he gets the Macedonian vision, going to, going to Greece to preach the gospel. He's with Silas there, put in a Philippian jail. Then they come to Thessalonica. And people believe they're in Thessalonica. And this is to whom Paul is writing in 1 Thessalonians sometime after this. But it's funny the accusation that's leveled against the believers in Thessalonica in chapter 17, verse 6. And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city. Yeah, Jason's a Bible name. Do you know that? He was a Thessalonian believer. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come here also. Man, what a testimony. This was only 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, and Christian disciples were being referred to as those that had turned the world upside down, and now they've come to our city. Wow. Wow. You know, they didn't have airplanes, they didn't have internet, they didn't have printing presses, they didn't have iPhones, and yet they turned the world upside down. How is that possible? And then when I look at Christians in America, 20 years from the resurrection, Christians were those that had turned the world upside down. Let's go back from today, 20 years past in America. What's our testimony these last 20 years in America? What have we done? We've done exactly the opposite of that. And I don't even know how to describe the opposite of that. We've done the opposite of what the Christians in the first 20 years of the church did. We as Christians this last 20 years here in America. And I don't even know how to say what the opposite is. The diametric opposite of this is what we've done. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who was a theologian that made a statement one time, he said that there should be a sign in the front lawn of every abortion clinic in this country that says open by permission of the church. Those early Christians turned the world upside down. They received the word of God, the written word of God, as it was in truth. They received the word of God and therefore they turned the world upside down. We as Christians have set it aside And therefore, abortion runs rampant. How many babies will be aborted each day in America? Wicked. The living word can be received. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to those that believed upon His name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. To re- Jesus, to receive Jesus, is to be born of God. To be born of God is to be born again. To have the Spirit of Christ born in you. Some of you kids ask, pray that I'll get saved. Do you understand that to be saved, you have to be born again? To be born again means to be born of God. It's something God has to do in you. And to be born of God is to receive Jesus. To receive Jesus. Just as you read the Bible and you receive in your heart that it's true, you do that with the person of Jesus. You cry out to Him and say, Lord, I receive you as my Messiah. I receive you. You died. You were buried. You rose from the dead. And I receive that. And then the Bible says, God, you will be born of God. That's what it is to be saved. Just receive it. If I were to take this phone and, and give it to Matthew, he receives it. He received it. That's in the physical realm. In the spiritual realm, the Lord is calling you. Jesus is calling you to receive it. It's not a special prayer. It's not magic words. Just receive it. As many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. God will give you the power to do what you need to do if you receive Jesus. Both can be received. Yes. exactly what I demonstrated in the physical he reached out and took it if your mommy and daddy tell you, you they love you do you believe them or do you say in your heart Ah, I don't know if that's true or not do you believe them when your mommy says I love you do you believe it okay you receive that in your heart right Do you say that with Jesus? Do you believe him? Jesus said you must be born again. The Bible says you must be saved. You must repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Do you receive that? Do you believe it like you do when mommy and daddy tells you they love you? That's receiving in the heart. Just like you do when mommy tells you something or daddy tells you something. Both the living word and the written word, they can be loved, hated, despised, rejected, and received, but they both also have a unique quality. Superman had this, but Superman's a figment of the imagination. Superman's not real. Satan has his Superman coming, the Antichrist, but we're going to see what happens. A lot of time gathers, you know, it takes time, months and years to gather them all together. But when the battle happens, it's over pretty, pretty quick. Superman had an x-ray vision. Superman's not real. The Messiah and the Word of God have x-ray vision, real x-ray vision. Both have x-ray vision. When Jesus walked the earth in John chapter 2, makes a pretty bold claim about him in verses 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. He was in Jerusalem preaching at Passover. People believed on Him, but they only believed because of the miracles He did. They didn't believe because it was the fulfillment of the testimony of God's Word. Therefore, Jesus didn't take him seriously. They said they believed, but He didn't commit Himself to them because He knew all men. And He needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in men. He knew. He had X-ray vision. He could see their hearts. Those that said, oh, we believe on you because of the miracles, he knew it was, it was fake. Because he can see the heart. How many times did Jesus... How many times is it written of Jesus in the Gospels? At least five times in Matthew and Luke, it says he knew their thoughts. I'm not talking about the disciples, his intimate friends. He's talking about the people, the scribes, the Pharisees. He knew their thoughts. X-ray vision. We don't know people's thoughts. We can make educated guesses based upon their actions. A lot of times we can be terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. I made an assumption about something last week that got me down. So I decided to pick up the phone and, or not pick up the phone and call, but to communicate directly immediately. And when I did, what I found out was the truth was the complete opposite of what I thought. I don't have that power, but Jesus did. And he does. He knows our thoughts. You know, there was this congressman that died recently. He was the longest serving congressman in American history. That's not a noble thing, that's a bad thing. These people go to Congress and they get sick and they can't serve anymore and they're in there for life. It shouldn't be that way. But he died. I don't even know his name. He was a Democrat, a liberal. Everybody talks about, oh, you know, all this thing this guy did. Even the president complimented him. I guess you've got to do respectful stuff like that if you're a president. I don't know. But you know all these things he did and how his last words that he wrote down to his wife before he died, his last thing he said was, God bless America. You know, and he, it was talked about how he was so vocal in all of these things, dealing with liberal causes and equality and... And, and all of this madness that's so virtuous in the eyes of the world. But you know what? Today, he lifts up his eyes in hell, being in torment. Yes. And he realizes that all the things he fought for, that he called virtue, are an abomination in the eyes of God. Because the living word has x-ray vision. He can see through your virtue signaling. And it's, it, it, on the day of judgment, those, some of those who decry racism today it will be exposed that they were some of the most racist people that ever lived. Those that shout love, it will be discovered that they are some of the most hateful people that ever lived. Those that are accused of being Nazis and and, and dictators, it will be exposed that they were some of the nicest and most loving people that ever lived. Because the x-ray vision of the living word will reveal the secrets of men. Paul talked about in the day of Jesus Christ, the secrets of men would be revealed. The written word has x-ray vision. In Hebrews chapter 4, we've talked about this passage. Paul makes reference to the written word of God. And after quoting Old Testament scripture, I mean a direct reference to the scriptures. After quoting it, he says... For the word of God, the, word, the written word of God, is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It can divide the soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It knows thoughts and it knows motivations. X-ray vision. Then in verse thirteen, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Here Paul uses a personal pronoun for the Word of God. The living Word, the written Word, they're the same. They have the same quality, same x-ray vision, the same ability to know what Jesus was able to do in His earthly ministry with men the Word of God is able to do today. Both raise up out of the dust to declare God's power. Romans 9 verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. The scripture saith, this is what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 9:16, and Paul says it's the scripture that saith. The living word can raise up out of the dust to declare God's power. We see this in John 11. John 11:14 11, and 15. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe nevertheless let's go unto him and then in verses 43 and 44 and when he had thus spoken he cried with a loud voice Lazarus come forth and he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face bound about with a napkin and Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. The living word can raise up out of the dust to declare God's power and that's what he did when Lazarus got up out of the grave. Both can foresee and preach details about the future long before they happen. Both. Both the living word did this himself in his earthly ministry as he walked the shores and the roads of Galilee in Luke 9:22 he told his disciples saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and raised the third day jesus prophesied details of what exa- exactly what would happen to him he'd be rejected by the Jews he'd be crucified he'd suffer he'd raise again on the third day in Matthew 20.19 he goes even farther with details that seemed unlikely Matthew 20.19 Verse 18 I'll read. Behold we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall deliver or condemn him to death. By this point in Jesus' ministry it became likely that that could happen because the Pharisees hated him so much. But verse 19. And shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him and the third day shall he rise again. Well that's where it became problematic because... For the Jews to arrest him and to condemn him to death, the law demanded that they stone him. So the only way Jesus could be delivered to the Gentiles and crucified is if the Jews who claimed that Jesus would viol- was violating the law would violate the law themselves. And at the time Jesus said this to his disciples, that seemed unlikely. What do you mean handed over to the Gentiles and crucified? But he knew details of the future even those that seemed unlikely, before they happened. Galatians 3.8, the written word can can and does do the same. Galatians 3.8 And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Paul has a quote-unquote nasty habit of substituting the word Scripture for God. The Scripture for seeing told Abraham in thee shall all nations be blessed. Now this is not a reference to the promise made in Genesis 12 about a seed and about nations in thee being blessed because he didn't tell Abraham before before Isaac was born. He didn't tell Abraham that in him all the nations would be blessed. He told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3 that in thee all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This reference that Paul is referring to goes to Genesis eighteen eighteen. In Genesis 18, 18, this is what was said to Abraham. See the... The, the uh, replacement people, they want to they take what Paul says here and put it back on Genesis 12 and say the church replaces Israel. It has nothing to do with Israel, the land, or the seed, or any of that. We are that. But Genesis 12, 3 doesn't say, in the all nations will be blessed." It says families. In Genesis 18, 18, "...seeing the Lord said, "...shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation." And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And they will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. That the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken to him. Man, what a testimony for God to say. I know Abraham. He's going to teach his children right. He's going to pass it on right. That's a testimony. But... God, the scripture foreseeing that God would bless all the nations told Abraham this in Genesis 18. This was after the promise of Isaac and after the promise of a land. So it has nothing to do with a church replacing Israel at all. God promised Abraham a seed, a land, and descendants. And then through him all families of the earth would be blessed. In Messiah, and through Him, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Through His, after the promised seed was given, and after the land was promised, through the seed and the land, the na- all the nations would be blessed. We're going to see this in the millennial kingdom. But here, Paul substitutes the name, the word Scripture for God. The Scriptures foresaw these things. Both can foresee and preach. Jesus did the living word, the written word does too. The way the families of the earth are blessed, as promised in Genesis 12, is through the faith of Abraham. Through the faith of Abraham. Nations are blessed through the following the example given to Israel in terms of governance in this world. If a nation follows the word of God in terms of how to govern its society, there's blessings. That's, why, that's one of the reasons America was blessed. All nations that come up to Jerusalem and observe the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium will be blessed. We're the spiritual seed of Abraham by faith in Messiah. That makes us the spiritual seed. That doesn't mean that the physical seed no longer exists. exists. There's always been a remnant that's believed in Israel. There's always been. God's kept His promise. It's not been replaced. The the, the adulterous wife of Jehovah isn't the virgin bride of Christ. But the scriptures foresee these things. Man, the scriptures foresee a lot of stuff that is really quite amazing when we go back and look at it. Let's look at a couple of passages real quick Isaiah 66, 8 through 10. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Here we have the scriptures foreseeing that the nation of Israel would be born in a single day. And if a nation was born in a single day, would would God not cause the nation to open its eyes and bring forth in terms of Messiah? God brought it to birth. You know, as wicked as Israel is today and as all that's coming ahead with Antichrist and all that, would God bring to birth and not open their eyes to the truth? Like we're going to see at the end of the tribulation? Of course not. But here we see the scriptures foreseeing and preaching details about the future. In May, on May 14th, 1948, Israel, when the, when the uh, uh, British Mandate expired concerning the land of Palestine that was put together after World War I when the Ottoman Empire fell, it expired. At that moment, Israel declared its Independence. May 14th, 1948. And by the end of the day, that nation was recognized as an independent nation by others. And they followed the example of the United States. Because at that time, at the end of World War I, the United States was the most powerful nation on the planet. The entrance of the United States is what gave victory to the Allies, not just in World War I, but in World War II as well. Without the United States, there would have been no victory. So all these people out here, particularly these Euros I run to, they want to talk about everything that's wrong with America. I'll talk about what's wrong with America because it's my home. It's my people. But I'm not going to sit and listen to Euros bash my country. Ain't happening. That's why I, as a Gentile, don't go to Israel and preach about, all oh, you Jews, you're blind, you're all of this. If you're Jewish and you've been saved, do it all day long. But I'm a guest I'm not Paul. I'm going to go in there and talk about the Messiah, but I'm going to do it in a way that a guest does when he's in someone's home. So uh, uh, that's what Paul did in, in uh, uh, Ephesians with the Gentiles. When they tried to accuse him of ruining the craft and idol-making and all that, the, the, the man in charge of the city said, Look, these guys came into our town. They've not, they've not robbed churches, and they don't, haven't been blasphemers of your goddess. What's the problem? Well, that tells us Paul and them went in there preaching Christ. They went there preaching Christ. They weren't talking about Diana. When I go and preach to Muslims, I'm not going to have to sit there and give Muhammad all this attention that he doesn't deserve and he did this and this is wrong. I'm going to preach Christ. I'd rather them get angry about that. But um, Israel became a nation in the day. This was prophesied 700 years before Christ. And when I think about that... And I think about President Harry Truman. Harry Truman was a great president. Some people, Somebody had the nerve last week on Facebook to, tell, to say that Donald Trump is the best president that America has ever had. And that speech in the State of the Union was the greatest speech that's ever been given in this country. Man, you got to be willfully and woefully ignorant of American history to say such a thing. And then, he, then the person asked me, well, who was better? And I just listed off a number of presidents. Bang, 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 bang. Right off the top of my head. And Truman was one of them. And the reason I would say that Truman deserves to be put in a place of a better president than even Donald Trump today, I don't even think he's close. I wouldn't say he's better than Reagan because I'm not a hypersensationalist that looks at the moment and makes judgments on all of history based on a moment. That's foolish. But Harry Truman... When Israel declared its independence, he knew they knew this was coming. He'd been wrestling with it. He wrote some letters to a family member wrestling with what to do. There was pressure. And all of his advisors advised him against it. We don't want to damage our relationship with our allies, with the British and others that had been opposed to it. His advisors advised against it. Every member of his cabinet advised against it. People in Congress advised against it. He was in Washington, D.C., and... All of the advice coming his way was opposed to this. And he wrote to a family member at that time and said, you know what? They're telling me not to do this when the time comes. But sometimes you have to just do what's right and let all of them go to hell. (laughs) That statement alone makes him a greater president than Donald Trump. That statement alone. You know, Back when this agreement was reached and a, sh- a temporary shutdown was, was a- averted, that w- should have been a time when Trump was like Truman and said, you know, sometimes we got to do what's right, secure our country, and I'm going to let all the rest of you go to hell. We'll see if he takes the Truman approach on February 15th. Let's wait and see. Maybe he will. But Truman, when it came to recognizing Israel's independence... And recognizing that God had a plan and purpose for the nation, said, "We, I have to do what's right and let everybody else go to hell. And Truman uses executive authority to recognize the government of Israel that very day. And because of that, other nations fell suit. And the United Nations came in line. And from that, Israel had to fight a war, but was able to secure their independence. And they've been a nation ever since. The scripture foresaw these things. 1 Kings 13.2 1 Kings 13.2 I'll start with verse 1. This was from this the day of Jeroboam about 975 B.C. And behold there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. That's that golden calf he raised up. One in Dan, one in Bethel. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee. And men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Prophet came and when that altar was erected, he prophesied. One day... You're burning incense now on this false altar. One day a king's going to be born named Josiah, and he's going to burn the priest of this altar on that altar. Here we have Josiah, the <clears throat> king of Judah, prophesied by name more than 300 years before he was born. The scriptures foresaw and preached details of the scripture, of the future, the written word. Isaiah 44:28 is amazing. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Here we have the scriptures prophesying about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple long before it was even destroyed. Long before the Babylonians were even more than a blip in world history, long before Jerusalem was destroyed, this was prophesied and written when Jerusalem had Solomon's temple. It was still standing, and God said it's going to be destroyed, and Cyrus, my shepherd, is going to see that it's rebuilt. Long before Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon, Isaiah prophesied its rebuilding. That's why the the liberals try to say there were two Isaiahs because they can't accept the fact that the written word of God can foresee and preach details of the future. On into chapter 45, thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Verse 4, for Jacob, uh, uh, for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect I have even called thee by name. Not only was it prophesied that Jerusalem would be rebuilt in the temple long before it was destroyed, God spoke Cyrus' name about 150 years before he was born. And he tells Israel, I'm calling him by name. Just so you understand, I know what I'm talking about. 150 years before Cyrus was born, he was prophesied by a name. Jerusalem's rebuilding was prophesied 100 years before it was destroyed. The scriptures for seeing and preaching details of the future. Micah 5.2. We take this for granted as just a Christmas time passage, but it's far more than that. Micah 5.2, but thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Bethlehem, a detail of the future. How insignificant. Why not Jerusalem? Bethlehem? The shepherd's fields? The little town seven or eight miles away? When this was prophesied, it was unlikely Details of the future fulfilled 500 years later. Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, God, the God of Israel speaking, whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be embittered from him as one that is bitterest for his firstborn. The crucifixion of Christ, God in the flesh, his piercing is prophesied about 400 years before the Romans even started using crucifixion as an official punishment for non-Romans. If you're a Roman citizen, they wouldn't crucify you. That was for non-Romans. That's why Paul wasn't crucified. He was a Roman citizen. Had his head cut off. A more noble death. A quicker death. Romans wouldn't do it to non-Romans. But this was 400 years before the Romans started using that as an official punishment of criminals, Of illegal aliens. Non-Romans. Crucifixion. Details. Amos 5.8. Amos 5.8. An amazing passage. Seek him... That maketh the seven stars and Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into morning, and maketh the day dark with night, and calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Job in verses chapter 9 and, and, and chapter 38, we have reference to the Pleiades. The Pleiades. Here we have the seven stars. The words used here in the Hebrew language talk about a seven-star cluster. That's well known. If you look up in the sky at night, you can find the Pleiades. If you go to Orion and you look over, there's a triangle that has a bright one on one side, an upside-down triangle. That's the head of Taurus the bull, and his horns go out the top. And the Pleiades is his tail, the seven stars, the grouping of seven. Okay? This was written about 788 B.C. in Amos, and then Job talks about the Pleiades, or the, you know, that, that's a Greek word, but he talks about that constellation in 1490 B.C., and it, or around 1490 B.C., and it's tied to the number seven, but the telescope wasn't invented until 1600 A.D. Go stare at the Pleiades at night. You can't see seven bright stars in that constellation with the naked eye. You can see five easily, maybe six. But when you look through a telescope, oh, there's a, big, there's a bunch of them in the cluster. There's way more than seven, but there's seven that stand out. But the Bible said that long before the telescope was invented. I mean, I see that as amazing. I'm sure a liberal would, would explain it away. They explain away everything. Both foresee and preach details. Jesus did about his own crucifixion, his death, burial, his resurrection, about the Gentiles involvement. The written word is done it time and time again. Fulfilled prophecy is the greatest proof that this is the word of God. Something the religious books of men don't have. If you wanted to take fulfilled prophecy as the judge and put the Quran beside the Bible, it would be like putting an anthill beside Mount Everest. And I'm not talking about one of those giant anthills in Africa. I'm talking about the little one in your mulch garden out there. That's what it's like. Both... Break in pieces. Both are a giant bear trap. When a bear steps in a bear trap and that thing clamps shut, it's powerful enough to break its leg. It's over. Breaks in pieces. Breaks that leg in pieces. Can't go anywhere. The bear is trapped. Both break in pieces. We would do well to remember that the Messiah and his word are both giant bear traps. Jeremiah 23:29. Hang with me, we'll go to one and I'll stop. 23:29Is not my word like as a fire saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. My word, the written word, it breaks in pieces. Jesus, the living Word, does the same. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, 17 and 18. I'm going to hurry. And he beheld them and said, What is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Jesus is talking about the the Psalm 118, the prophecy of Messiah. The one that's rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. He's talking about himself. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him. That's another good Spanish verb, desmenusal, will grind him to pieces. You see, the living word breaks in pieces in two ways. Either you fall upon him and you're broken, or he falls upon you and you're pulverized. Two options. Either you fall upon Jesus in humble repentance and faith believing he is who he said he is and trusting in him and you're broken you're broken in repentance or he falls upon you and you're pulverized the living word breaks in pieces may we be those that fall upon him and are broken not those upon him he falls and are pulverized i like that word pulverized you know it's funny that passage in psalm You know, about the chief cornerstone. That's a prophecy of the rejection of Messiah. And then the Lord making him, God, the Father making him Lord in Christ. There's a verse we quote all the time, and it's from that psalm, and we sing it. We sing it. Verse 24: This is the day which the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that and we're singing about today. Well, hey man, that's true. God gave us a day of life, let's rejoice. But understand that that scripture is not talking about any old day. It's talking about a specific day. It's talking about the day when the rejected stone is made the chief cornerstone. That's what it's talking about. That's the day the Lord has made. He made that day long before it ever came into being. What is that day? when the Messiah is finally recognized by His people for who He is, and He comes, and He grinds the Antichrist and His minions to powder, and He sits on a throne in Jerusalem. That's the day that the Lord has made. Let us be, be glad and rejoice in it. Yeah, let's rejoice in this day. But that scripture's talking about that day. And we need to rejoice in that. Not forget about it. Not avoid it in the scriptures. Not avoid it when we share our faith. Rejoice in that day. Hang with me. i almost done. Both break in pieces, both are a giant bear trap. Both lead to saving faith in God. The living word himself says in Matthew chapter 11 All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, and neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son and he to whomsoever the Son real will reveal him. The Son must reveal the Father. We can't know God unless the Son reveals him to us. A Muslim can't know God. A Jewish rabbi who rejects Christ as Messiah can't know God. A homo can't know God. Bulldagger can't know God. A Democrat who runs on a a platform that supports abortion and all kinds of sin can't know God. Because you can't know God unless the Son reveals Him to you. Only the the living Word must lead you to saving faith. The Son must reveal Him. That's why John is able to say that He that rejects that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that Jesus is the Messiah, is the spirit of Antichrist. You can use God's name all day long, but it's He that has the Son that has life. Without the Messiah, you can't know God because He's got to reveal it. He has to lead the same faith, and He does, but the written Word as well. The written Word leads the same faith. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. So you can't know God Unless the Son reveals him to you, and He reveals him by the written word of God. Now, the written word of God can be revealed to you by the revealed to someone by the Son in a dream. When God called Paul, He did so by the written word of God. What had been written concerning him, His call to the Gentiles came by the written word of God. God appropriated exactly what was written there. Of, or Paul appropriated exactly what was written there in Isaiah about Messiah and the Gentiles. So they came one and the same. We, we, we need to be careful listening to so-called revelation from God that does not involve or is in agreement with His written Word because it isn't from God. The living Word the written Word work together and lead men to saving faith in God. There is no true worship without both the written and the living Word. There's no true worship without both. Jesus said that God is a spirit, John 4, 24, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The reference to spirit is the living word of God. The reference to truth is the written word of God. How do I know these things? The testimony of the scriptures. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoptions of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's by the Spirit of the Son of God received into our heart that we can approach God as Abba, the Hebrew word for Father. can't worship God as Father without the Spirit of His Son in our heart. It's the word. The written word. Jesus said to God as he prayed for his disciples and his humanity and those that would believe after his disciples. So that includes us. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. So when Jesus talks about worshiping God in spirit, that's through the spirit of his son, the living word, who only can reveal God. And in truth, that's the written word. What he says later in chapter 17, thy word is truth. No true worship without both. You can't worship God, Mr. Musulman, without, with your Quran. You can't worship God with the Quran. You can't worship God without Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God manifest in the flesh, and the written word of God is preserved in the scriptures. You can't <laughs> worship God, quote unquote, Christian without the Bible. You can't love Jesus without the Bible. It goes one and one together. Guess how the psalmist worships. He worships God in chapter, or not chapter, in Psalms there's not chapters, that's kind of incorrect. Psalm 138, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. The psalmist is worshiping. I will worship toward thy holy temple. And praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. The truth that Jesus talks about in Psalm 4, I mean in John 4, worshiping in spirit and truth, that's the word of God. That God is magnified even above his name. When the psalmist worships, he acknowledges the ascendancy of the word of God. That's true worship. You can't have true worship of God without both. So I don't care how many songs you sing. I don't care how many feel-good songs that could be talking about God or our girlfriend. We raise our hands and sing with our eyes closed in church. You can't worship God without the living word and the written word. And then both. I'm almost done. Let me finish, and then next week will be a good, fitting conclusion. Both. Have done all, both do all these things. There should be no doubt in your mind that they're mysteriously one and the same. Both are eternal, both create, both tried by fire, both judge, neither can be broken, both offer new birth, both give life, both are immortal, both are truth, Both can be loved, hated, despised, rejected, and received. Both have x-ray vision. Both raise up out of the dust to declare God's power. Both foresee and preach details about the future long before they happen. Both break in pieces. Both lead to saving faith in God. No true worship without both. And then Revelation 19. Both return hand in hand to smite the nation. You can't have one without the other. And what, a, what the greatest picture we have of that is right here in Revelation 19. His name is called the Word of God. And what does he have with him? A sword that goeth, a sharp sword that goeth out of his mouth. With which he smites the nation. There you have the living word and the written word together. That double-edged sword, the Bible says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. They both return hand in hand to smite the nations. And lastly, let's flip right back. We came back to Revelation 19. Now let's go to Revelation 1. Let's go back to where this all started. Revelation 1.9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion, this was written to the seven churches, written to us, types of all churches, actual churches in John's day, types of all churches, types of churches that exist during the church age, and a prophetic picture of the church age. I, John, also am your brother and companion in tribulation. John's not a claiming apostleship here. He's not lifting himself over above everybody else. I'm just your brother. I'm your companion in tribulation. And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the testimony of Jesus, for his witness alone, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was in trouble for the sake of not only the living word, but the written word himself. Both, my friends, are worth suffering on the Isle of Patmos for. Both the living word and this Bible that Michael Sweet was clutching in that Striper music video that came out recently. They're both worth suffering and dying for. Both of them. Jesus is worth dying for this book is worth dying for. And when they come for it, when they come to take it from you and your children, what better time to give your life? That's a foe they can't comprehend. That's a foe the world has no idea what they're dealing with. You see, when the early Christians were scattered and gave their lives... And the church was thrown all over Asia Minor and all of those trials and everything associated with Paul's persecuting the church, him getting saved, him getting kicked out, exiled, Peter getting thrown in prison, James being killed, Stephen being killed. Well, those were enemies that the Jews didn't understand because 20 years later, the church had turned the world upside down. It's worth dying for. It's worth doing what so many have done before so that we can have a Bible in our language and understand, You know, there may be time to fight and draw a sword. Men of faith, in Hebrews 11, men of faith are described as those that waxed valiant and fight. I long for the day I can wax. I'm willing to fight. I'm willing to draw a sword. I'm willing to do it. But I also understand that there's great power. Some didn't accept deliverance, Hebrews 11 says, but gave their lives. There may be greater power in that than trying to fight in the physical of a war we can't win. I can shoot and kill about 30 Democrats with my AR-15 as they're coming up my front yard to seize my kids. But I'm, I'm dead, and they're going to seize the kids anyway. I can give my life like John Rogers did under the reign of Bloody Mary. John Rogers was... The author of the Matthews Bible, which was a very important stage in the development of the English scriptures that started with William Tyndale and ended with the King James Bible. Silver, pur- furnished in a, silver purified in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. It's amazing the, the history of the English Bible, purified and refined seven <coughs> times. It started with William Tyndale, it ended with the King James. But Ma- the Matthews Bible was an important step on that route. John Matthews continued the work of Tyndale and Coverdale. and or His name was Thomas Matthews. That was his pen name, his, his disguise name, so he could do his work. But his name was John Rogers. He was arrested under the reign of uh, Bloody Mary, and for his work with the scriptures, he was condemned to death. He refused to recant. He refused to take back what he had done. He refused to disavow his allegiance with the written word of God in favor of the Pope. And so he was condemned to be burned at the stake. Now, he was married... And he had a lot of children. I'm not 100% sure the detail escapes me at the moment. I think he had 14 children. I may be wrong. But there was no mercy from the court. He was condemned to die, and he was led out to the stake. And when he was led out to the stake, his wife and his children were with him and, and bid him farewell. He didn't choose to fight. He chose to go. And... He, sat, he got to see his wife and his kids there at the end. And they encouraged him. They didn't beg him to recant. If you'll just recant, they encouraged him. His littlest one, I, I don't remember the details. This is in Fox Book of Martyrs, I believe. The littlest one came up and said, Daddy, just go die for Jesus. And you think, well, man, the state's going to take his wife, going to take his kids, all this. He went and was burned at the stake. And he praised God until the flames extinguished his tongue. And then there was a study done of his descendancy. You know, his wife was suddenly a widow with all those kids. And I don't remember the details, but she raised those children. And they grew up. And when you go and look at their descendants and what was accomplished, when it seemed like nothing could be accomplished, it's quite amazing. It's quite amazing that in giving his life for the Word of God, it had a profound impact on his children Who grew up and passed it on and things were accomplished for the word of God long after his death. That is a power we have that our enemy will never possess. Never. Because the living word of God is worth dying for and the written word of God is worth dying for. You'll take my Bible from my cold dead fingers. both worth suffering and dying for. Is there any doubt that Jesus and the Bible are inseparable? Is there any doubt that they are mysteriously one or the same? Is there any doubt when the Bible says His name is called the Word of God that it speaks quite literally? Is there any doubt that there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't read Revere, cherish, believe, and preach the Bible. You cannot know Jesus, the living word, without the written word. I want to read one thing. I know it's a little late, but let me read this. I'm going to break the record today. Because it just makes next week great and a sufficient conclusion. This is something I wrote a long time ago on Facebook and a lot of times you know, I find stuff that I write on Facebook and I'm, I'm honest. I go back and look. I've written a lot of stuff over the years. I see it as a, as a pulpit. I've yet to find a post I regret writing. I really have not found one yet. I, I've yet to find it. I apologize for nothing. If I have to turn in my social media information one day to apply to renew my concealed carry gun permit, it will not be renewed. It just won't happen. I'm in trouble. I will never get elected to any political office because of things I've posted on Facebook. But I've yet to find a post that I regret. This is one I wrote a long time ago and I, it directly refers to what we're preaching today. And I make no apology. This was years ago. And I stand by every word of this. Those of you who claim the name of Christ and lightly esteem the written word of God, beware. Those... Like the wicked pastor in the video I posted earlier this week, I don't even remember what that example was, who claimed to love God and to love people and yet mocked the Bible, beware. The Word of God is not just a book. It's not just an antiquated diatribe. It's a giant spiritual bear trap. So beware. After all, he, Hebrews 4.13, can discern, Hebrews 4.12, he can see with x-ray vision, Hebrews 4.13. He can raise up people out of the dust for the sole purpose of judgment, Romans 9.17. He can foresee and preach details about the future long before they happen, Galatians 3.8. He can break in pieces, Jeremiah 23.29. And he inevitably leads people to saving faith, Romans 10.17. Now, I didn't read this post and make my sermon outline. I didn't read and make the sermon outline at all. It's funny how it's the same things here. Are there the mark of a, of, a, of, a, of a faithful preacher is one that is consistent? If he grows, but he's consistent. If I'm consistent and I'm a good preacher, I know that's by God's grace. I'm not taking any glory. Don't hear it that way. In the wilderness, Israel waxed fat, grew thick, and lightly esteemed the rock of her salvation. Deuteronomy 13 15. Have we Christians here in America done the same? Making our feelings, whether or not we have a peace about something, and our convictions the authority over and above the written word of the living God. Without the Holy Bible inspired by God and perfectly preserved for us in a language we can understand, we spoiled Americans wouldn't even know the Lord and Savior and what He wants us to do, let alone who He is. You say the rallying point, the common ground, is the person of Jesus Christ. But which Christ? The Catholic Christ who can't deal with you directly and needs you to come through his mother? The Mormon Christ who is the spirit child of an alien from the planet Kolob and has a brother named Lucifer? The charismatic Christ who changes with the wind and wouldn't dare offend a Jesuit priest or a lesbian with the truth? Or is it the emergent Christ who appeases the wicked and yet despises his own body, the church? The church? Is it the postmillennial Christ who has no tangible throne and can only speak in dark allegories that a select few can understand? Or is it the Muslim Christ who didn't really die on a cross, the Christ of rabbinic Judaism who has never even been to this earth? the Hindu Christ who survived the crucifixion and is buried somewhere in Kashmir? Or is it the Baptist fundamentalist Christ who cares more about whether or not you attend every Sunday and Wednesday night service than if you love the brethren, preach the gospel and obey the great commission? Is it the Methodist Christ who said homosexuality is a sin and that women are not to pastor churches but he was only really joking? Is it the Buddhist Christ who was absorbed into nothingness? The Lutheran Christ who checks off confirmation class attendance? The Presbyterian Christ who died for only a select few who have been sprinkled with water. Or is it the Christ of the Church of Christ who begats with water instead of with the Holy Ghost? Is it the Southern Baptist Christ who entertains and performs? Is it the Abolitionist Christ Who cares more about abortion and frozen embryos than going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature? Is it the replacement Christ who cannot keep His promises? The reformed Christ who venerates men? Which is it? Which Christ are you talking about? That's easy. Whatever you make Him out to be. Unless you rally around the book that declares exactly who he is and what he wants from you. Without the written word of God as the center of Christian fellowship and the final authority in matters of faith and practice, all such fellowship is ultimately a facade and a farce. The Holy Bible, the divinely inspired, perfect, preserved, saint-used, time-tested words of the living God and the absolute Monarch of all books. Hobiblias, the book. And in the book, the written word of God, it is written. He, the living word of God, is not here. He is risen as he said. Moreover, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Praise God. Therefore, guys, you can't separate them. Therefore, let's desire the sincere milk of the word, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, and the meat of the word, Hebrews 5. Let's pray. Lord, we've run long today, but it's okay because your word... Your Messiah, the Christ, they're worth suffering and dying for and they're worth getting started a little late for lunch. They're worth going over time in church. Praise God for that. Lord, we're so thankful for your written word that's given to us. So many have never seen it. So many never had their own copy and yet they're in our houses on our shelves. We can freely obtain them to give away. May we use these great blessings and not waste them Lord, we trust in your word. We trust in everything it says about Jesus. Lord, we thank you that through the Bible, face to face, we can know even as we're known. And that one day, though we're on this side of that molten sea of glass, way up there beyond the heavens, Lord, one day we'll be in his presence. And then there'll be no doubt. Face to face, we will know even as we're known. Help us to be what the Quran accuses us to be, people of the book. Help us to know when to fight or when not to accept deliverance in the dark days that are coming. And Lord, we pray, we ask that you do according to your written word and that you come quickly for your church and fulfill what is written, just as you did in so many things when you walked the dusty roads of Galilee. Until that day, Lord, help us to desire the sincere meal covet the meat of the word and to go ye therefore into all nations and preach that word. Bless our food, Lord, and our fellowship today. The breaking of bread, just like the early church gathered on the first day of the week and they broke bread together and heard the word of God. Paul preached so long up to midnight, a guy fell out of the window, fell asleep. And uh, I dare say that the preaching hadn't been that long today, but praise God. You